It's again my distinct privilege to be before you tonight. And if you would, you can open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. We're going to begin in just a few moments in verse number 6. As you turn there, let me just make mention of some that are present here tonight. I heard from Jeff earlier in the week and then later this afternoon that he was going to be here. And I was thrilled to know that he was able to keep that intended appointment. In my part of the world, we have a gospel preacher over at Double Springs named Vance Hutton. And Vance Hutton, if you ask about anybody in that part of the country, he can walk on water. And, uh, and I wouldn't argue with that. Vance is a great gospel preacher. He's been at Double Springs about 33 years and, uh, and is, is beloved by all the brethren uh, in the area. A great encourager of preachers and great uh, uh, example of Christianity. And, and I have the feeling just in the, the time that I've gotten to know Jeff that, that Jeff is walking in those footsteps. He's a great encourager. I, I was a little bit behind Jeff at Freed Hardman. He was either on his way out, just about to graduate when I got there, or we, we didn't cross paths there. And I was never uh, very familiar with Jeff until uh, my role with uh, polishing the pulpit began to, to grow and expand. And in the last several years that I've been up there and, and working and, and being associated with Jeff, uh, I've grown to love and appreciate him so much, and it means a lot uh, to me. Uh, for him to make the trek over. I know Cleveland can't be close. It ain't close to anywhere as far as I can tell. And uh, I will tell you a story. One time I was leaving one work and looking for another, and I don't even remember which congregation it was, but it was a congregation in Cleveland was looking for a youth minister. And one of the questions on their questionnaire for their applicants is, why do you want to move to Cleveland? And I, I never did get an interview, and probably because my answer was, I don't necessarily want to move to Cleveland. <laughs> said, I'm just looking for a place to work. <laughs> so, but, uh, but that's, that's my, the extent of my experience with Cleveland outside of my relationship with Jeff Archie, and I love and appreciate him. And uh, I know Brother Eric uh, from our uh, uh, becoming acquainted in the first week of March of this year at the Polishing the Pulpit at PTP Spark at Jacksonville. And Eric and I went out to eat with uh, with Jason and B.J. Rollo after uh, one of the evening sessions, and I got to know him and made mention that I was going to be in the area, and he told me he'd do his best to, to be at the meeting, and uh, and he's here tonight, and Eric, you, uh, I appreciate you making the effort to be here. Uh, last night, I was with uh, my cousin Sandy, and and uh, we were drinking coffee last night, and, and she had a lot of good things to say about Eric Garner. And uh, and so I already thought he was a good fella, but if Sandy loves him, then then I know he's got to be a good fella. And so, uh, but uh, just appreciate uh, just appreciate these that have seen fit. All of you that are here, I appreciate your effort to be here tonight. In Second Thessalonians chapter one and beginning in verse six, the Bible says, "Seeing it is a righteous thing for God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you." And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them who know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of God and the glory of His power. 
As we think about this particular text as it pertains to judgment and eternal punishment, I think that regardless of whatever the Bible says about hell, and the Bible has a lot to say about hell, you'd think the Bible didn't say anything about hell to listen to some of the preachers today. They act like hell don't even exist. I'm going to tell you what, when you get a preacher that doesn't think hell exists, you get a bunch of members that act like hell don't exist. But the Bible teaches us a lot about hell. And as Jeff prayed so eloquently in his prayer tonight, it is to be avoided with every fiber of our being. It is a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. A place of everlasting fire. It's a place that's not even prepared for man. God did not make hell for man. But Matthew 25 says in verse 41, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a place where the wrath of God is poured out without mixture, without dilution. We think about how, how badly, how badly God wants to punish Satan for what Satan has done to his perfect creation. And we think about all of the power of God and the ability of God not only to bless but also to punish and to think that hell is a place that has been created to punish the devil. We ought to, it ought to just send shivers down our spine to think that we could ever conduct ourselves in such a way as to be consigned to that awful place. So many people think that hell is a place where the devil's just going to jump up and down and laugh and holler and hoop and have a good time and jab you with his pitchfork. There will be no creature in heaven punished in hell more than the devil himself. That is what hell is. But of all of those descriptive terms concerning hell, I think the worst part of hell is found in the text that we just read in verse 9. The word from, in verse 9, from the presence of God and the glory of His power. That word from there means a separation. It means a departure. It means a cessation of sorts. And therefore, in looking at this, in looking at this text, we understand that the worst part of hell is that God is not there. You know, as bad as things are in this world, and I, I have been to some terrible places. I've been to some of the largest slums on the face of the earth. and On the West Beach uh, in, in Monrovia of Liberia, one of the worst slums in the world. Unspeakable filth and disease and crime and sin. And yet, God is there. There, there is hope for those people because God has not, even though it might look at it from our vantage point, that God has abandoned that, He has not abandoned that place. I've been in Nairobi, Kenya, home of the largest slum in the world. If I remember correctly, four million people live in unspeakable squalor. And yet, though it may appear to the human eye that God is not there, God is there. And there is hope for all of those who dwell there because God is there. But God is not in hell. And with that in mind, I want us to think about hell with reference to the attributes of God. And the things that God possesses 
and gives. And because they are the things that God possesses and gives, cannot of necessity be found in hell. Number one, there is no love in hell. There is no love in hell. In 1 John 4 and verse 8, the Bible says, God is love. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse number 11 says that He is the God, and here's the key, He's the God of all love. The God of all love. And it's being the God of all love, if God is not in hell, there is no love to be found anywhere in hell. Our ability to love comes from God. By the way, the very fact that we can and do love, the fact that we recognize that love even exists and we know that it exists, is a testimony to the existence of God. Evolution cannot explain the existence of love. Love cannot be empirically measured. It cannot be quantified. And yet every single one of us in this audience know that love exists. And as being as it is, we know that love teaches us that God does indeed exist. And our ability to love is because of the love of God. Romans 5 and verse 5, the love of God is poured out into our hearts. In Romans 5, 6 to 8, God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Have you ever noticed that that word is in the present tense? He demonstrates His love toward us. King James says, commendeth, but that's a present tense word as well. That means that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross at this very hour, is still a visible demonstration of the love that God has for us. If Paul could speak of it in the present tense, 30 years after the event, it's still in the present tense, 2,000 years after the event. God's love is still demonstrated to us in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rick and I were talking tonight about a couple of men. One of them is a deacon at church where I, where I uh, now preach. And another man uh, just celebrated his fifth spiritual birthday. He, was, he obeyed the gospel on March the 31st, five years ago. On, in fact, it was on Easter Sunday. On Easter Sunday. And I'm going to tell you, those two men were rough. They were rough. The one who now serves as a deacon was my mechanic from the time that I moved to the Burleson community in 1996. He obeyed the gospel on August the 8th of 1999. He's a a mechanic. His shop is called Big Boy Automotive because he's a big boy. He's about 6'3", and he, he crossed 300 a long time ago. When I first met Big Boy, had a big old mohawk, went right down the back of his head into a ponytail about that long. Big old red beard. Fun-loving, gregarious, loud, joke around, just a great guy, but he wasn't a child of God. He had no real interest in religion. 
until his son got to be about four years old and he figured out, I better start getting this kid some Bible learning. I don't want him to grow up to be a heathen. I got to get that boy in church. And he started attending and, and, and he obeyed, he obeyed the gospel. And the first thing he asked of the elders when he obeyed the gospel, he said, do I got to cut my hair? I told big boy, I said, I hope you don't. I said, ain't nothing that says you got to cut your hair. He said, matter of fact, I hope you don't. He said, we got some folks around here that need to lighten up a little bit. That satisfied him. One of my elders said to me a little bit later, he said, you know, he said, one of these Sunday mornings in the near future, John's going to show up with his hair cut. And all the women are going to make all over him. And sure enough, less than just a handful of weeks later, John showed up and had that ponytail cut. Still had the mohawk, but he just cut the tail off of it. And he showed up and the women just, all oh, they talked about how good his hair looked. How good he looked. But John was rough. Jimmy Woodard obeyed the gospel March the 31st, 2013. Rougher than John ever thought about being. Life of alcohol, drugs, spent a number of nights, I'm sure, in the county jail or in some local lockup. Has lived a hard, hard life. He's one of the finest Christians that we've got at Burleson right now. He'd do it. He'd do anything. He'd do anything for me. He'd do anything for any member of that church at Burleson. He's as good as gold. You know what that is? That's a demonstration of the love of God. That's the love of God. God is the God of all love. And if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John chapter 4. Let me conclude by considering this. Love is vital to the human experience. Who in this life wants to live their life separated from love? Nobody wants to live their life separated. We even, we even get animals at our house. Don't we? So we can have expressions of, we can show our love even to, to, to the, to lower forms of God's creation. We live our lives in pursuit of love. Nobody wants to live apart, apart from love. But there is no love in hell. There is no love there. Because God is not there. And He is the God of all love. Number two, there is no grace in hell. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10, God is called the God of all grace. As being the God of all grace, if God is not in hell, there will be no grace in hell. And again, the very idea that humanity can extend grace is a testimony to the existence and the grace of God. Men can exhibit grace. I was a, I was, by the way, I was a recipient of that grace even last night in a, in a roundabout way. After the services last night, Sandy and I went down to Pernera Bread and and got us a cup of coffee, and we hadn't seen one another and visited like we ought in a number of years. And we just sat and talked and, and talked over the time. And finally, we realized we was the only ones left in the building. And they were mopping. 
And one of the managers of the store came out with a loaf of bread, cinnamon raisin bread, already wrapped up, and said, would you all like to take this home? Well, I wasn't going to take it home, because you already heard what I said to you all last night about eating. But I let Sandy take it home. She'd give it to Eric, take it to work, whatever. Eric, 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 did you get any any bread today? Okay. Eric, did you get any bread? All right. At least one Eric got some bread. But that that was an extension and an expression of grace. We didn't do anything for that bread. It just sit, except sit there until closing time. She didn't owe us that bread. She didn't have to offer us that bread. But it was an expression of grace on her part to ours to give us that loaf of bread. And because of God, we can extend grace. Humanity is the only creature that extends grace. In the same way, humanity is the only creature that, that expresses real, genuine love. But if God is not in hell, there is no grace in hell. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, His throne is called the throne of grace. That we can come boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Second point, I'm not going to mention this very much. I just mention this because it's on your handout and I see some of y'all confused because I skipped it. See, y'all like some of my folks at Burleson. They expect me to just go line by line through the outline. Sometimes I don't do that and they get confused. Look, and I skipped a section on purgatory and y'all just chomping at the bit to know what I want to have to say about purgatory. Purgatory is the damnable doctrine of deferred grace. You know, I didn't know a whole lot about purgatory. You know, and by the way, let me just let me mention this. I mentioned this last night, and those of you that weren't here won't know what I said, but I'll, I'll repeat it. That there are a lot of people in the religious world that think they know a lot about the Church of Christ, and they don't know five cents about it. Because they, they just go by what they've heard, you know, what they've been told, they haven't really investigated it, and therefore they say a lot of ignorant things about the church. By the way, Roman Catholicism is the same way, you know. Members of the church say a lot of ignorant things about Roman Catholicism that aren't true because it's just things that we've heard or, or things that, we, that, we've, that we've read or, or that, that, that somebody told us. I never knew what purgatory was all about. But having done some study, I found out that the Catholic doctrine of purgatory is that purgatory is like a temporary hell for the Christian. A temporary hell for the Christian. I believe it was Aquinas that said that purgatory, that, that, the, that the best of purgatory was worse than the worst on earth. In other words, no matter how bad things could get on earth, it'd still be better than the very best that you could find in purgatory. But if purgatory be true, then the blood of Christ is not enough to get me to heaven. Bible doesn't say that there's some other proven ground after I leave this life. The Bible says this life is the proven ground. And the blood of Christ is the only thing that will get me from this life into the next. No purgatory required. And by the way, it is true about purgatory that you can pray people out and you can pay them out. Pray them out or pay them out. And if that be true, then purgatory 
proves to us that the grace of God is not sufficient. Because if man can do something to change it, the grace of God is not sufficient. But God is the God of all grace. There is no unmerited favor in hell. If God is the God of all grace, and He is, there will be no grace in hell. Number three, there is no comfort in hell. Again, as Jeff mentioned in his prayer from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 3, the Bible teaches us about the comfort of God, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God. God is the God of all comfort. If God is the God of all comfort, and the Bible says that He is, and God is not in hell, there shall be no comfort, no comfort in hell. The Bible speaks of hell in those terms. The fire is not quenched, and the worm dieth not. It is a place of weeping. Wailing is the word there. Wailing. Not just weeping with that little tear you know, coming down. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. It is a place of outer darkness. Rick was telling me, we were talking about kind of this sermon, and one that he had preached, he talked about that hell contains all the things that men are afraid of, like darkness and fire and loneliness. And we seek comfort from those things. And yet God is the God of all comfort. You ever had to undergo any kind of medical procedure where they couldn't give you any kind of deadening agent? If you haven't, don't. If you can help it, don't. But you know, there's one thing when those types of things happen to us, or even if, even if we were afflicted with some illness or some great tragedy, we always know there's comfort. There's always comfort. There's always light at the end of the tunnel. There's always the opportunity to rest. And yet, hell is described as a place where the smoke from their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night. Many times rest is the greatest comfort that one can find. Rick and I were talking about our trips overseas, and you go overseas and you just work like a dog from sun up to midnight, day after day, and it's hot and you don't eat well, and it's just one thing after another. And as soon as you sit down on that airplane and they point that thing toward the United States, the only thing you want to do is sleep. You just want to rest. That's the greatest thing that, that, that you have to look for. I can get some rest. Can you imagine what it would be like to suffer with unspeakable agony and torment? And it ain't no, ain't no break time. Ain't no rest time. There is no rest day or night. 
You know, our lives in the United States shout to our vigorous pursuit of comfort. Look at this building. To anybody that lives overseas, you know what this building screams? Comfort. Be in India, be in Africa, sit in a Sunday morning service that lasted three hours and 40 minutes on a hard wooden bench and didn't even have a back on it. I'm talking about just be hurting at the end of the, at, at the, end of the assembly because you're just not used to sitting on a wooden bench for three hours and 40 minutes. And the wind is open and it's 100, 110 degrees. You know, and the sewer right outside wafting in and, and then, and then somebody goes to cooking some nasty mess and smoke start rolling in. We don't worry about none of that here. It don't ever get too cold outside for us to be comfortable in here, right? It never gets too hot outside, but what we aren't comfortable in here. We got padded seats, we got padded backs, we got air conditioning, we got lights, we got restrooms, we got water fountains. Every one of us got air conditioning and heat in our home. Our whole lives scream the pursuit of comfort. But there is no comfort in hell. There is no comfort in hell. And that's why there's no love in hell. Those two things, I think, are inseparably tied in this respect. Because of the intense, unspeakable agony of hell, there is no time to even think about love. I remember in 19... It was 1988. Rhonda and I had gone from Freed Harbor and went back to my hometown in Dexter. I went to go, wanted to go see my Uncle John, my grandpa's brother. Served as an elder in church for many, many years. A great man of God who was just eaten up with bone cancer. I hadn't seen him in a while. And I remember going to his house in that hospital bed in that house. And I watched my Uncle John just writhing in pain almost blinded by the pain, taking all of the pain medication that was, that was allowed medically and receiving absolutely no relief. And to have his family there, his wife, his sons, his daughters, his grandchildren, surrounding that, surrounding that bed, and he didn't take even one moment to recognize that any of us were there. Why? Because of the agony. He probably never gave one moment's thought at that point of how much he loved his wife, how much he loved his kids, how much he loved his grandkids. Because the pain was overwhelming. There wasn't time to think about those things. There wasn't the ability to think about those things. And to speak of the unspeakable horrors of hell, Nicole, I said I was going to talk about you tonight. I gave you warning. Do you think that Rick could ever do anything to you to make you stop loving him? No. Look back over that shoulder on the pew right behind you. Go ahead, look. You think there's anything that little girl could do to ever make you stop loving her? 
I'll tell you something. You want to know why I picked on Nicole? Because I know that she is a person that has a great capacity to love. Just in the time that I've spent with her, I realize she has a great capacity. She married to Rick. (laughs) But y'all know, you that know her know how much love is in that girl's heart. But I promise you one thing. If you lose your soul, you won't love your girls no more. You lose your soul, you won't love your husband anymore. And Eric and Eric and everybody else up in here, Jeff, that goes for every single one of us. If we lose our soul, we will lose every bit of our comfort and every bit of our capacity to love. Because God is not there. And He is the God of all of those things. Very quickly, let's move to number four. There will be no peace in hell. Again, a place of outer darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. In Romans 16 and verse number 20, He is called the God of peace. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. He is called the God of peace. If you're not going to turn that down, I'm just going to move it down. The God of peace. Jesus said, Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give unto you, but my peace I give unto you. John 14, 27. John 16, 33. These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. And in this world you have tribulation. But be of good cheer. For I have overcome the world. The peace that passes all understanding. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7. Look at Philippians chapter 4 just very quickly. In Philippians chapter 4, but we'll pick up in verse number Eight. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things and the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. These do, and the God of peace will be with you. He is the God of peace. And as such... If God is not in hell, there will be no peace in hell. Number five, last one. There is no hope. There is no hope in hell. Have you ever sat at the bedside of some loved one? Been in some consultation room with a doctor? And heard these words, there's no hope. There's no hope. For the faithful child of God, that's never true. There's always hope. The child of God always has hope. But those who are in hell have no hope. In the divine comedy of Dante, in the uh, inferno portion of that writing, 
Speaking of hell, he says, the inscription over hell reads, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Obviously, we know that's a work of fiction. But nevertheless, those words are just as true as they can be. Abandon all hope, all ye that enter here. There is no hope in hell. Think about this. If you were to lose your soul, or if I was to lose my soul, and I was in hell, if I knew in the back of my mind that hell was only a million years, as bad as that would be, if I knew in the back of my mind that hell was only a million years, what would I have? I'd have some hope. I can I get some relief in a million years. What if it's a billion years? You'd still have hope. A trillion years, you'd still have hope. But there is no hope in hell. No hope in hell. No love, no grace, no comfort, no peace, no hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Sometimes I think we miss the point. We do have hope in this life in Christ, but not in this life only. We have hope in Christ, but not in this life only. David said in Psalm 16 and verse number 9, My soul shall rest in hope. You will not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Therefore, my soul shall rest in hope. And Peter quoted those words on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But there is no hope in hell. Finally, as we close, I want you to think about a passage of Scripture from Luke 16, 19 to 31. In the account of the rich man and Lazarus, when both of those men died, Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, and the rich man died and lifted up his eyes in torments. And seeing Abraham and Lazarus in his bosom, he cried out, Father Abraham, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water. And cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now without going into anything else that Abraham said in response, here's what we need to know. Abraham expressed him no love. Abraham extended no grace. Abraham offered no comfort. Abraham promised no peace. And Abraham gave him no hope. And that's just the waiting place for the real deal. That's just the waiting place. Why would anybody choose that? 
We make a deliberate choice every day of our lives to pursue love and grace and comfort and peace and hope. Why would we choose to live in eternity without those things? But the choice is ours. The choice belongs to each and every one of us. But the question remains, why would anyone choose that? Joshua 24, 15, Choose you this day whom you will serve. If you're here and you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, we plead with you to make the right choice tonight. Choose God. Choose Jesus. Choose love. Choose grace. Choose comfort. Choose peace. Choose hope. Obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believing with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8 and verse 24. Repenting of your sins, Luke 13, 3 and 5. Confess the Lordship of Jesus with your mouth, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And let us immerse you in water, as Jesus said we must, in Mark 16, 15 and 16. To be saved, to receive the remission of your sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. To be washed from your sins, Acts 22, 16. And to be justified by the grace of God, Titus 3 and verse number 7. If you're here as a child of God and you know that you are not on the course, a path that will lead you to heaven, make the right choice tonight. Choose to repent of your sins. Choose to confess those sins, for He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We plead with you tonight. Make the necessary choice right now as together we stand and sing this song.